People use these things as symbols. I mean, one of the things that drove me crazy in in my just being in this world as a musician of color, playing the music that I do, is this idea of the European fiddle meets the African banjo. It, that drives me nuts. It absolutely drives me nuts because it, it what happens is that people take these symbols and they simplify. They simplify, simplify, simplify. And because we're just, we're allergic to, to complexity now. It's just like our attention spans are this long and people just want an easy story. And so an easy story is the Irish or Scotch-Irish came with their fiddles, met the Africans with their banjos, and the music was born. And it's just total BS. It's not how it happened. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh. Riata Giddens is one of the most versatile and respected musicians in the world today. The child of a European-American father, an African and Native American mother, she grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, in the nearby rural community of Gibsonville. She attended Oberlin College, where she studied opera and later helped found the Grammy Award-winning traditional string band the Carolina Chocolate Drops. She has performed at numerous music festivals and is only the fourth musician to perform at both the Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals. She has also performed at the White House, and in 2017, she was named one of the MacArthur Genius Fellows. As noted by the selection committee, Giddens drive to understand and convey the nuances, complexities, interrelationships between musical traditions is enhancing our musical present with a wealth of sounds and textures from the past. I met and interviewed Rihanna while attending the National Folk Festival in Greensboro, North Carolina in 2015. Here now is that interview. My name is Rihanna Giddens and we're sitting here in a studio at the Triad Stage in Greensboro, North Carolina, my hometown, where I was born uh, in 1977 at the Moses Cone Hospital, which is still around. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I can't remember what else I was supposed to say. <laughs> uh, so tell me about uh, your family and uh, where did this music come to you? Because obviously music's a huge part of your life. Music is a huge part of my life. And um, uh, my family's all from not just, not actually Greensboro, but the small towns surrounding Greensboro. McLeansville, Sedalia, uh, Julian, they're all from around there. And I spent a lot of time out there with uh, with my grandparents and also Mebane. My uh, mother's, uh, mother's mother's people are all in Mebane still. A lot of Moros live, in, live there. And so I would go there once a year uh, for family reunions. That's going to be an important town that will come back later in this conversation. Um, and I... I uh, was surrounded by music by my, within my family. My dad was a singer. My, my he still is. My sister sings. My aunt sings. My mom's uh, loved to sing and, and had a big appreciation for music. So I was surrounded by vocal music a lot, especially my dad's side. We'd have Christmas and three part harmony and the carols. You know, everybody would sing together. And my uncle's in a bluegrass band, and my gr- grandfather was in a bluegrass band. I didn't. I never knew him, but. So a lot, a lot of music. Uh, church music? Any no, you know, choir? it's really funny. Uh, uh, I didn't grow up singing in the church. We were a part of the Unity Church. I was always saying, but not in that kind of black tradition that you, you hear about. And my dad was a, was a music director at some sort of I know, Methodist churches or something, you know. So I never really had that sort of classic black church experience. Um, Mahalia Jackson. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, this, the closest I got was... Sunday mornings, mass choir recordings and radio blasted through the house. My mom just loved that stuff. And I, I fell in love with it, too. So I got used to hearing that tonality and, and hearing that, you know, every Sunday morning, but not in church itself, um, just through the medium of the radio. We listened to On the One, uh, the uh, A&T station uh, on Sunday mornings. So they always played mass choir stuff. So, yeah, just a lot of different influences and a lot of just encouragement to to make music, but nothing, no pushing 
no. So when did you pick up your first instruments? I played guitar a little bit. Um, my dad was a guitar player, so there was a guitar around the house. So I learned like six chords and that was it. You know, I never did anything with it. I'm not, I'm still not a guitar player to this day. Um, and it, it wasn't until I graduated and came back home from college that I picked up my first fiddle and my first banjo. So I was in my 20s. Started down that road then. Huh? Yeah. A road yeah. of some consequence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did your parents think of that as a, as a road or path you were going to take? Maybe it's your livelihood. Yeah, I don't think anybody thought anything of it. They just went, oh, there she is. Like, you know, I wanted to learn opera, so I went off and learned opera. And then I want to learn banjo and fiddle. And I started, you know, I got a, uh, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any instruments. And I, I was working a day job in town as a graphic designer. And uh, I, got, I got another job as a singing hostess at the Macaroni Grill here in town and would sing sort of cheesy Italian arias to anybody who wanted one and hopefully get tipped and mostly didn't. And as soon as I earned enough money from that job to buy my first instruments, I quit and bought my first banjo. It was a, it was a during good time and my first fiddle was a cheap Chinese $100 job I bought from a local uh, Dave Shepard from a local uh, instrument seller and and uh, musician because I was like, I'm not buying an expensive fiddle until I know I can play this thing. So, and it was cheap. <laughs> um, my first finger placement on the E string, I think, suffers to this day because of the intonation of that fiddle, but that's okay. Um, yeah, and I remember I brought it home and it was actually, I mean, I had the fiddle first before I bought the banjo. I brought it home and um, started playing Christmas carols, started picking out Christmas carols on it. And uh, just remember thinking, this is this is an instrument for me. I don't, you know, I didn't know how hard it was <laughs> when I picked it up, and I'm glad I didn't. I never would have done it. I never would have done it. But I just, I, you know, the, the left hand was just, I felt it. When I picked it up, I just felt it. I was like, I know, I know where the notes are. It just was weird. And um, the right hand now, that took some time, and it's still, I'm still working on it, but uh, yeah. So there's two questions I had in my mind. One is this connection between your fascination with opera Mm -hmm. and then playing this music. What brought you to opera first, and then what have you drawn from opera itself? How does it play into what you're doing now? And I mean, I came to it because I wanted to sing, and... In opera, they sing all the time, and in musical theater, they have to talk. That was my decision. I didn't know the canon. I had seen one opera on TV, and so the school that what was, was that? Op- what was the opera? It was uh, I think it was was it Traviata? I think maybe. I think it was. Yeah, I had to write a review of it for my class. Um, that's why I was watching it, and I, you know, so I went to Oberlin, and uh, I was very lucky because I ended up loving the music, <laughs> you know. And loving the drama and the the way the composers would put, you know, like the singer would be saying one thing, but, you know, they'd be saying, oh, I hate you, but then the love theme's playing in the the orchestra, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just all the ways that you can communicate with that art form. I just think it's staggeringly beautiful and wonderful. And so as soon as I started doing it, I was like, this is, I love this. Um, The problem with that world is that it's very hard to be a self-made musician in opera. You have to audition you are always at the whim of somebody else, the whim of the people who are who are picking the, the roles. Then maybe they have a size 8 costume and you're a size 10. So they want you to do it, but you can't do it because they have a size 8 costume. I mean, it's that kind of thing that happens in that world, unfortunately. And I just kind of was like, I want to make my own music. I want to put on my own stuff. And, and you know, so I did. I mean, I, I you know, I sang with the mezzo-soprano. We did concerts. We made a recording. And... Um, that was, I, I really loved that. My The last opera I did was the sort of perfect way to go out. I did it here at UNCG, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And it was a student production of Susanna, which is by Carl by Carlisle Floyd and it's set in Tennessee. And it starts with a square dance, which I choreographed and taught the chorus to do and ends with me on a porch with a shotgun, <laughs> you know. And it was just great. I had to play like fake play auto harp. And it was just like all this intersection of what I was kind of my burgeoning folk career and my sort of ending classical career sort of intersected for this one production. And it was just really great. So then, you know, moving on to to being a folk player, you know, the focus that you need from opera, being a classical musician of any stripe, 
that kind of focus and dedication and discipline. I then just moved over to fiddle and banjo and learning Gaelic and learning traditional songs and, and pretty much wanting to know everything about something because that's how I learned opera. You know, when you are a role, say you're Manon, you have to, I well, at least I did, go read books about France in that time period and what's going to make her tick. And then I have to learn all the French and then I have to learn why is she like this and the music's like this. So you, you get used to kind of really, really digging and learning all you can about something. And so I just moved that into Celtic music. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna sing an Irish song, I want to know why you would have sung it, where it comes from. You know, otherwise, otherwise I'm just ignorant. I'm just singing a song from another culture, and I don't know why I'm singing it. I early on was just like, if I'm gonna sing this stuff, I want to know, I want to know about it, so that if somebody asks me, I can tell them. Give me some sense uh, again as you're you're starting to learn the music, so. You're now thinking about where this music's coming from, different traditions, different yeah. families. It's yeah, the family music. Yeah, often. well, yeah, I mean, I come I come into it through contradance. You know, that's how I come to this, to instrumental music at all. I mean, I was a singer and, you know, pretty, you know, that's what I do. I sing and came home from, from school, kind of burnt out a little bit and uh, started really contradancing around here, became a dance gypsy, just really just obsessed over it. Like, I just loved it. It just saved my life. And uh, a lot of the bands playing for the contra dances around here are like old time bands, Palamont and Bobcats, New Palamont and you know, a lot of really good old time music. And then there was Celtic bands playing. So I was getting a lot of different kind of styles of, of, of traditional instrumental music and um, really uh, fell in love with the banjo. Um, I started playing the fiddle with, a, I joined a Celtic band and started playing second fiddle with the, the fiddler in that band. She was a um, Scottish fiddler. So I started learning a lot about Scottish music and really liking it a lot. And, you know, my name is Welsh, so I was always interested in sort of the Celtic world. And, you know, I just kind of fell in love with that. And, and then also learning, you know, where the banjo comes from and the African-American uh, uh origin at that and so it was just really this whole world that I just completely fell in love with and um it, you know beginning as a fiddler with another fiddler and she was really she has a beautiful tone I mean she still plays she's not dead <laughs> she has a beautiful tone and and she was a really good stylistically Scottish fiddler and so I just played with her and that was a great way to learn um I think that's why my intonation's good now is because I play I, when I started playing I was playing with somebody who had really good intonation and I just match what I was doing to her and uh learned how to do that and and so I was doing that and then playing banjo trying to play banjo with Celtic music and <laughs> um and then I found really fell into the the sort the, the black string band tradition getting record collecting recordings and then meeting Joe Thompson and, How'd that happen? Just tell me. Um, I read a book called um, Af African Echoes and shoot African Banjo Echoes in Appalachia by C.C. Conway, and I met her, and uh, I was like, "Who should I?" And she's at Appalachian she's State. At, she's at App State, and she was also she That's also Boone, teaches right? at um, UNC, I think, some too. Okay. So I saw her in in Chapel Hill, and uh, she said oh, you should go see Joe Thompson. He's around. He's still playing, and I got to see Joe play, and I was like blown away. And, and who who was he? Tell us a little bit. About Joe him. Thompson is a well was a uh, an African American fiddler who had been playing. He had played as a young as a young man as a child and as a young man as a part of the the family band the Thompson family band so he grew up in Mebane and played for the square dances in his neighborhood the white dances and the black dances and so that the Thompson family band that was the dance band and so he and his brother played and it used to be his father and his uncle and then they took over and uh they played for years and then uh, people grow, they, they get older, the war happens, people go off to war, his brother moved to the north. Um, after the war, that, that whole way of life was gone. I mean, it just like the whole idea of corn shuckings and, and dances and stuff. I mean, it just was, you know, it was no longer happening. And so he, he had fallen into like not playing. And then he was discovered, I think in the 70s, um, the early 70s, um, as a, the treasure that he is. And, and the, the white um, folklorist and musician community around sort of rallied around him and got him playing again and he, he started was, he was living in Durham he was living in Mebane oh, in, in a house Mebane. that he built in Mebane yeah oh, okay. on Mrs. White Lane and uh, his cousin so his brother was was gone and dead and his, so his cousin started playing with him banjo with him so they would go out and they played at Centrum fiddle tunes they played all over the country and uh, a lot in North Carolina and um, played at Merle Fest and it was in fact at Merle Fest that his cousin um was killed crossing the road 
like to get a really? tooth. It's awful. And he was just he's he t- when he tells the story, it's just so sad. He just went to get a toothpick or something. I mean, something so stupid. And he was just crossing the road, and somebody hit him, and he died. And so from then on, that meant Joe was the last. Um, Odell was his cousin, Odell Thompson. Joe, that meant Joe was the last of Ode- his family. What did Odell play? He played banjo. He, he was he was actually, from what I know, actually was a fiddler as well. But he he switched to banjo to play with Joe because Joe was kind of was the fiddler. So after that, Bob Carlin and all these sort of folks like started playing with him and to keep him playing because he won't play with he wouldn't play without a banjo player. And his tradition, like the banjo, was the lead instrument. And so as a fiddler, like we'd go down, you know, when we started going down, which I guess I'll get to that in a minute, um, we learned very quickly that he wouldn't, Joe was not going to play without a banjo player. So you have to have a banjo player. And that's one of the reasons why I started playing banjo with him. And he, you know, the, the community around him really kept him alive. But what happened was I, I saw him play. And at that time, so I never got to meet Odell. Odell passed before we came along. And so he was playing, I think he was playing with Bob Carlin. And I saw him and I was like, that's amazing. And I, I think I got to go and play with him like one time. And then he had a stroke. And that was it for a while. And I, I didn't know if he was going to be able to play anymore. And and his friends and his uh, put a put a fiddle back in his hands and his doctor said he'd never play again. And a, a good friend of his said, here's your fiddle, put it in his hands. And, you know, he ended up playing again. So I, I feel like I owe tremendous debt to the the friends of Joe, the people who played with Joe and really just kept him, kept him playing because that was such a huge part for him. I think it just, it also kept him going, the, the fiddle and, and having friends coming over and playing with him. And so I, I saw him again, uh, a bit later at the the Black Banjo Gathering, that was in 2005, and that was at App State. And uh, he was there, and Aljamain Hinton, and Mike Seeger, and all these African players, and um, it was just an you know, incredible extravaganza of, of Black and African um, roots of the banjo lectures and concerts and all sorts of stuff, and it was really incredible. And, and the handful of actually like Black players <laughs> there which I was one of like eight seven maybe um you know we kind of were like oh wow we didn't we I thought I was the only one (laughs) you know we were all kind of going it's so great to see another person of color playing the banjo who's not an elder who's like young person and and I met um two two fellows who then started the band the Carolina Chocolate Drops with me so Dom Flemons and Justin Robinson and we started going down. Dom moved over from Arizona, and Justin was already living in Chapel Hill. So we started going down to see Joe. So we were all like about half an hour away from Joe's house, and we were You're just in your mid twenties. Yeah, well, I'm there. They're in their early twenties. I'm in my late late twenties, I suppose. Um, and uh, I was the the elder <laughs> of the three of us. I was five years older than two of them. Um, and we started going down to play with Joe, and I was the only banjo player. Justin only played fiddle, Dom only played guitar and four-string banjo and jug and other stuff, so, and bones. So I, since I played both, I said, well, I'll, I'll play the banjo. So like, I was, I had been playing for, for a while, but like, I was still, you know, kind of basics, rudimentary banjo player. And the banjo player that I am now is because I've played with Joe so much. We we used to go on Thursday nights and we just play for, play all of his songs two, three times for a couple hours and and it was we did that for a, a long time. And what were you learning about the fiddle watching and playing with him? Oh man. Um his bow hand, I mean, his bow hand was unaffected by the stroke thankfully. So it was just the left hand. So which is okay cuz you know his songs all have like four notes in them. So <laughs> you know, the bow hand was the magic for for Joe's playing in my opinion. And uh just so that short that short stroke Thing, you know the barking puppy the, the, it's it's hard to explain without showing it it's it's just like all these sort of magical things about his playing that come from him being a dance fiddler for years coming from being a functional fiddler not a professional performer but a a, a a fiddler that had a function in his community and I think that that affects your playing because you're playing to make people move you're not playing the most complicated melodies and the most whatever. You're playing to make people move. So the rhythm of that is is paramount, and uh, I love it. I love that. I, I wish I wish there was more of that in fiddle playing. Now I just love the rhythm and I love the kind of infectiousness of of making you want to dance. And my banjo playing is because of his fiddle playing. I matched. I didn't play. I couldn't play like Odell. I couldn't play like Nate. I couldn't play like Bob Carlin. I, I learned from the recordings just so I'd have 
the tunes and, and some of the licks, but uh, I learned strokes from him and then put them on the banjo and then a, that then kind of came to my fiddle playing as I became more of a fiddler, a weird <laughs> juxtaposition. And again, these terms are, I don't know if they're arbitrary, but you have classical music and uh, you know Western European highly developed structure around playing melodies and so forth. And you have these legacies uh, where this great violinist learned from this great violinist, you know, sort of a, how it was passed on. Did Joe ever talk about who he had learned from? Well, he learned from his daddy, and that had been passed down. Daddy learned from his daddy. And, and this goes back to slavery? I don't know. I don't know how far it goes back. I know it goes back at least several generations. And he's, it, was a, it was a family thing. It really was. And when he started off, he, he remembers his daddy's fiddle on the wall, couldn't touch his daddy's fiddle. And uh, wanted sa- and saved up to get his own fiddle. Go went went and went and bought a fiddle and only had two strings on it. And his his brother's like, you know, Daddy ain't gonna get you no strings. And so he goes to the screen door and pulls two wires out, like he's seen his relatives doing, like his cousins or whatever doing, and puts them on the fiddle. And he 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 taught he that's one of his one of his main stories. And he'd always say, and I messed with them things and I messed with them strings until they sounded like something. And I just like. You know, that was the world. That was his world. There was no Xbox and there was no TV. I mean, it was the fiddle. There's a a band I interviewed, the G. Burns Jug Band. Mm -hmm. I interviewed the fiddler. And she was classically trained, came up through Suzuki. And then, uh, in fact, it plays with quartets at a very high level of skill. But she plays with this jug band that they just have something. I've seen them just take over a room the way they play. And I, I talked to her about her instrument itself and this idea that, you know, these were people always working with tremendous limitations on all kinds of levels. And then if you add the fact that they were black, and mm-hmm. you know, in the South and uh, not having the resources, but t- making do with what they could get their hands on and creating art. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, with her, I was asking, you know, well, do you feel like having such a good violin that you're playing in this music is – can almost work against it in some ways, against what you're trying to understand the music and express the music. And she was saying, you know, it's a question I've been thinking about more and more as time goes on. I think the biggest disservice you can do a young uh, musician is to give them a really expensive instrument. You know, I really just, you know, not to say that there's not plenty of people out there who started off with expensive instruments and sound great and whatever, having a great career. I just think that you learn a lot by having to wrestle with a crappy instrument. And you appreciate the nicer instrument when you get it. And hopefully you bought it yourself. Money you earned from the crappy instrument or whatever, you know, like every upgrade. Because your ear, the more you get into the music, the more you start hearing where you need to go. And it, and it, it, it should be something that comes from you. I think not something that's been bestowed upon you. Like, here's this $10,000 mandolin child. Play it. You know, I just I feel like if you if you own the, if you own the music, you know, and you fight for the music you appreciate the music. I mean, I, I remember going to, to Oberlin as a latecomer to classical music. I didn't know how to read music. I didn't know the canon. I, did, I was like, Hayden, yeah, he's a cool guy. You know, I didn't know how to pronounce the stuff. I mean, I was like really at a deficit and I had to like catch up and, and but I loved it. You know, I was there for five years and I left every, like I got everything I could bring out of that school. Some front row music history every day, like my teacher loved me, you know, because I was like so excited. I didn't have to take math or science or anything, you know, I was like, I get to learn about music. And having that excitement, I could really see the people who were so jaded, who'd been playing since they were three and these beautiful, gorgeous instruments, and they didn't have to fight. They didn't have to fight for it, you know? Like they had, of course, they had to learn and they had to practice and all that stuff. But just like, choosing the music rather than it choosing you or that's what you just just because that's what you've been playing I think it's a there's a great power in that because you choose it and you fight for it I I really think coming to instruments later in life is a great thing because like you have to beat it into yourself because you didn't have it when you're five and it's easy to put it in your fingers you have to like sweat and you have to go lock yourself in a room and really fight for it and I think sometimes you can surpass artistically 
like I wouldn't say myself, but like, you know, I, I, I've seen people who've like come to it later, but they came to it with such ferociousness that they just, they just like shoot on down the road. Well, it's, it's that idea, a very important idea. And I, I think a lot about it is, uh, that, that creativity comes out of limitations, not out of possibilities. Yeah. We think that if you have more and more possibilities in the world we live in now, of course, with every little gadget and every slowdown machine so you can get the tune or whatever, however, you have all this in YouTube. You can go to YouTube and see all these great video instruction things. But I really do think it comes from limitations. So I, I'm, I'm very much of that, in that school thought. And, I, and I, what's interesting, too, about my love of traditional music on a personal level is that so many of the tunes that I learned, and I was I was learning in the early 70s, so some of these older players were around that people still talk about, Melvin Wine and, mm-hmm. and uh, Lee Triplett and all these folks. They came to this small town for where I lived, where I had a farm, and and I would go in and learn from them. And um, But even other people I learned tunes from. When I'm playing that tune, I really remember who I learned the tune from. Mm-hmm. And it's almost, I go back to that, the thrill and the enjoyment of learning the tune, but also the 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 sense of camaraderie that came along with knowing that person and the affection I had for that person. Mm-hmm. Well, I think when you're learning from a, a printed tradition and you're playing these older composers who you may know a, a, a good bit about, but you have no real personal connection to them, even though the music might be so much more sophisticated, and it's a different experience altogether. Because oh, uh, Melvin Wines in yeah. some of the tunes I play and, and Glenn Smith, and they're in it. And, yeah. uh, and that's, a, that's a treat for me. Yeah. Well, it's a human connection, and you can't get that from from the page. I mean, it's a different connection. Classical music, I mean, I love classical music. But, I mean, I just think if you're drawn to trad music, it's usually for a reason. And, and like, I was drawn to to trad dance for the same reason. It's the human connection. It's it's that that sort of ineffable thing in the music that you get when you learn from somebody else, which is why, you know, I'm so glad that we learned what we learned from Joe Thompson, that we, we, we got, a, you know, we got to sit with a living person and get to hear his stories and just absorb the molecules, you know, or whatever. There's just something about that. It's just really, it's special. And, and the air changes when you make music with somebody. You, you're making something new. And, and I'm just, I'm really grateful that we had that experience because we can, you can listen to a recording all day long and you can learn from that and you can learn something really good from that. But to, to be able to sit with the person, an elder, and, you know, that gets me back to to Mebbin, which I mentioned earlier, where my family was from Mebbin, and that's where Joe Thompson was from. And he called me Miss Mara to the end of his days because that was his, when you're Southern and you meet somebody else from the South and especially from the same region, oh, you know, so I say, oh, my family's from here, Joe. And he'd say, well, What's what's their name? The Morrows. Oh yeah, they live on the other side. You know, Mebbin's like this big. You know, <laughs> they live all the way on the other side of Mebbin. You know, and and that's and to me and to him, I was then Miss Morrow from from then on. Like he placed me, and just having that connection with him, I could have gone. Oh man, if I'd known about you, I could have been coming here for years. I could, you know, but I didn't. And so I take the gift for what it for its worth, which is a, a huge amount to me. And also just the connection. I mean, he could have been my grandfather. Like to have that connection with him and being that close to him and then be able to learn from him. It was just really, um, really profound piece of my development as a musician. Well, I came of, of age during the great folk revival and grew up in the city in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, pretty much most of my childhood and adolescence. And so I got a guitar mm-hmm. and I strummed the guitar and and uh, But it wasn't until I moved to West Virginia, and the fiddle seemed such an exotic instrument, something I never imagined myself playing. But a very similar experience when I picked it up, I suddenly like, this is a melody instrument. Mm-hmm. I still can't play guitar and then strum a few guitars. I just, there's something a, a different, you know, a lot of people think, well, if you can play this instrument, you can play that instrument. But there really is a difference about being that melody instrument, mm-hmm. especially the fiddle. And uh, what's your any thoughts on that idea about what is the violin? It's you know what's its attraction? Yeah, I really think so. I mean, as a singer, it just I think it was a real natural gravitation because it's a voice. You know, the the violin is a voice, and and um and I used to try you know I used to sing and play try to sing and play at the same time, and just like go oh, God, that'd be great if I could get that going because <laughs> the, the 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 two voices are so the timbre. Especially, you know, you start getting the lower voices even more. But that that just the the sound of it just really suits the vocal 
sort of the vocal idea and the vocal realm. And I think as a vocalist, I was just really drawn to that. I think that I'm very grateful for my time with the banjo uh, and my time backing up uh, people on the banjo, being learning my sort of rhythm and chordal. Well, I don't really play chords on the banjo. <laughs> I have three that I play. But learning my rhythm from that because I then put that onto the fiddle and being a very rhythmic player on the fiddle and also who I learned from too, that makes a big difference. But I'm, I really like being able to, I feel like I have a good lyrical sense on the fiddle, but I also have the rhythm. And for, for me, what I do, I, I like having both of those. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the magic things about American music is that it, it's so much of it is based on that fiddle banjo coupling that came from the, the enslaved Americans, you know, who, who, who were making music for the big house or for themselves or whatever. And there's a, there's a magic in it, I really think. And I think whether you play the banjo a lot or not, I think you can, you can gain from, from one instrument to the other. I did a, recently did a house concert with Dirk Powell, and he's a great fiddler and banjo player among 20 million other instruments. And we started off the concert with me playing fiddle and him on banjo and me playing a Joe Thompson tune, and, and we played it, and then we swapped. And he took the fiddle and I took the banjo, and then we played a tune he learned from his grandfather. And it just was like, I listened back to it, and it's fascinating, the, the differences in both styles of fiddle and banjo playing, but also the similarities and then where they kind of start melding, you know, where you can hear a banjo lick on the fiddle or a fiddle lick on the banjo. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like it was really fascinating to me and, and kind of made me think even more about that connection between the two instruments, because for me, it's it's a real holy kind of kind of thing, the two of them together. Right. And a lot of people don't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, they immediately associate the guitar with this music. Yes. You know, and that's a latecomer to the game. Very much so. And it changed so much. And it changed what happened, what was happening on the fiddle. It changed what was happening on the banjo. And I just, I love going back to just the fiddle of the banjo. The banjo has to take on, takes on a much more important character when there's no guitar stealing its rhythm, you know? But you don't have that boom chuck being done on an instrument that really wasn't meant to do that. I mean, I had nothing against guitar, and I love a good raucous guitar backup for old-time music, but the banjo was built for that. The music comes out of that banjo and fiddle interaction, not a fiddle and guitar interaction. So it's just, I don't know, I feel very strongly about it. <laughs> <laughs> what popped into my mind when you were saying that is, uh, I mean, the, the one idea of the history of the guitar is when the Mexican War happened, you mm -hmm. know, suddenly all these people from this part of the world went down and fought and there was the guitar, yeah. the Spanish guitar, and they brought it back and realized, well, it's got this volume. There's no amplification. I can fill a hall, got a bunch of dancers. So it met a lot of needs. But it, it seems like part of this, the world getting, and I don't mean to apply this to the guitar, is noise because it's music and it's true. I love the guitar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we are in such a noisier world. And back in the day that this kind of duets were played, it was so quiet. Mm. And so these instruments, the the nuance and, and the subtleties between what the banjo was doing, the fiddle, and how they played back and forth, and you would hear it where today our ears are not not accustomed or not, you know, they, they don't seem to look for that delicacy. They like yeah. something's got more strength and, and volume. Yeah. And there's and there's such a roundness to what's going on with the fiddle and banjo. It's it's a when you get the guitar in it, it just kind of straightens it out. And it's just like, you got the runs and whatever, but the sort of intricacies that you can get with a good fiddle banjo duo, it's just like, I don't hear it. And it's and it's like you said, you know, we get, we get used to the duller sort of these, the, not duller, we're like really piling on the guitar. But, you know, <laughs> in old time music, I really do have an issue with it a lot of times. You know, it's, it's not all the time, but just sometimes I'm just like, I really feel like it squares it up and it just, there's just... Um, there's just other ways of doing it. I, I just, I feel like sometimes that the roundness of the, of the music gets lost when people think that ha that's the way it has to go. You know, it's like, that's the way it can go, but it doesn't have to go that way. So do you sometimes play your fiddle or play on the fretless banjo? And do you play duets with people on the fretless? Because you're, again, when you're playing the guitar or some of these other instruments that have the compensated scale, you are not really playing in whatever key you're in. You're truly not playing in tune to that key. Mm -hmm. You're playing close to it. Right. But, uh, and that's what I think is part of the attraction of the fiddle or the violin 
is you can you really can play the pitch in yeah. that key that is in that key. Yeah. I mean, I haven't done, you know, I haven't played the fretless with a violin yet, which is interesting because I, you know, of the key that it's in. So I'd have to, it's not in the regular, it's, it's a, my, I have a minstrel banjo, so it's, it's tuned down to a C. So any tunes that I play are going to be in the wrong key for what the fiddler knows. So I have to, but that, I would, I do want to hear what that sounds like. It's, it's two fretless instruments together. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's the next thing. I mean, I have done, I have done a little bit of that with uh, Greg Adams, who plays really great minstrel style banjo with me on the fiddle. I've done a little bit of that and it sounded really good. I need to get back into that. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> I've had a fascination over years for some reason with maps. Mm-hmm. And I love to look at these old maps, medieval maps, or the, in the early years of the exploration of Europe into other parts of the world. And you'd have these continents where, you know, they'd be extended in one area, where usually they had a lot of activity. So it was right. kind of big for them. Other areas they didn't know much about. Right. Here so there'd get, be dragons or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And, and those old maps also were often maps of both space and time. Mm-hmm. So there'd be, you know, here's where the Great Flood occurred. You know, this is where this event in time. And uh, somehow the uh, the music has this quality, the old-time traditional music to me, of kind of mapping a terrain or a kingdom or a place, a realm, maybe mm-hmm. is the right word. And uh, one time I heard somebody talking about Ireland, and they were saying how small physically it is. It's a very small place. But over the years, every little turn in the bend, every rock, every tree that was very old would get a word associated with it. You know, mm-hmm. that was Clancy's Bend or like my wife, uh, they have Nanny's Corner mm-hmm. up in Wisconsin near where the cottage is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but this was all done in Gaelic. And so they expanded the world by everything started having meaning and would have a story associated. This is where so-and-so ran from the fairies of the puka. Mm-hmm. I love this idea. When the English came in, and essentially obliterated the use of Gaelic in so many areas and then put these just words like Morse and Lane or these these mm-hmm. anglicized words on these things. And many things had no words then. Any, nobody would thought that rock meant anything anymore. That there was a, a tremendous loss. Oh, huge loss. I mean, they're trying, to, they're trying to get it back. I mean, my husband's from Ireland, so I spend a good part of my year actually in, in Limerick every year. And I just came from there actually a few days ago. And they, they're actually trying to recover some of these Gaelic place names for, for, for some of the, especially, particularly in the West, the, the East just got so, <laughs> just got so mowed under, you know, by the Anglos. But uh, there's so much to be gained when you, when that name comes back and, and all of a sudden there's this whole history there and there's this whole like, you know, idea of what happened or what, you know, it's just, it's so enriching. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, why the fight for the Gaelic language is so important because there's so much tied up in the language and there's so much tied up, so much culture tied up in that. When you wipe that away, even place names, you lose, you know, you lose. That's just all there is to it. Yeah, and you're getting back to this idea of memory and really what is memory. I um, was talking to a brain researcher and and, uh, we were talking about memory and I don't know if I understood. (laughs) You know, this guy's pretty pretty sophisticated in his understanding, but he says, you know, there's no file cabinet, you know, by the way. It's not like a place where you put memories and you pull them out. There's nothing there. Mm -hmm. All it is is your neural um, transmitters fire in a a certain sequence. And a memory is they just refire in that way. Mm -hmm. And there's some reason that'll trigger them to refire. And sometimes they don't fire exactly the same way, which is why memory can be notoriously inaccurate. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, But memory, the very idea of memory is fascinating. And uh, maybe we'll enter into an area of this discussion because, again, it is about the violin and the fiddle and its role It's it, as a medium. As you understand the fiddle and its – does it have a political role? Does it play a, a place in your mind today even or in the past? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a symbol. You know, people use these things as symbols. I mean, one of the things that drove me crazy – in in my just being in this world as a musician of color playing the music that I do it's this idea of the European fiddle meets the African banjo it, that drives me nuts it absolutely drives me nuts because it, it what happens is that people take these symbols and they simplify they simplify 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 and, and because we're just we're allergic to, to complexity 
now. It's just like our attention spans are this long and people just want an easy story. And so an easy story is Irish or Scotch-Irish came with their fiddles, met the Africans with their banjos, and the music was born. And it's just total BS. It's not how it happened. Not to say that the Scotch-Irish or the you know the Gaelic speakers, the Southern Irish, whatever, not to say that they didn't have loads to to, to, to do with American music and the same with Africans. But the story is much, actually much more interesting than that. And so what, what drives me crazy is when the fiddle is taken as a symbol of mountain music or white music. And it's kind of like, eh, you know, they had fiddles in Africa too. They had stringed instruments in Europe too. They had like lutes and things in, in, in the Western Europe. I mean, you know, it's like nobody has a monopoly on these ideas. This idea of, of, a, of a piece of wood with strings on it. Nobody's got a monopoly on that. And, and um, so that, that kind of drives me crazy, the, the idea of taking a blameless instrument and sort of attaching all of this stuff to it. Also, the idea of these sort of ancient Celtic melodies coming over on the fiddle. And it's like there was sort of this pan-European thing that was happening and it was everywhere. And it was like it's just simplification that kind of drives me crazy. The, the truth is always more complicated than the story that we tell. And it's always more interesting to me. The idea of uh, blacks being enslaved migrants, which is my new favorite term instead of slaves, um, enslaved enforced migrants, uh, you know, learning the fiddle, learning. There's like uh, quotes about about. Uh, Blacks who who knew like Scotch airs and whatever their the the owners knew, they had to play for these folks. They have to play for the dances and so their own tunes, having their own tunes, and then learning the European tunes, and then having to play for the dances, and then that first idea of the fiddle and the banjo meeting together. And then who knows like the poor whites they were interacting with and the tunes that were being exchanged. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating idea of this this sort of melange of music that came out of really terrible terrible system uh of of economic torture but then it's like it happened what what i don't want is the music to be simplified to the you know that history to be simplified in that way so that it takes all the power away from what happened what actually happened what, I, what i'm does trying to explore sense? yeah it does make sense <laughs> in, in a lot of ways but i'm also very interested in trying to understand when the violin has been used, and is very use, has a political impact. I mean, what's interesting is that it used to be such, it was such an important, it was always mentioned in runaway posters, plays the fiddle, plays the fiddle, you know? It was even more more prestigious than the banjo. And so such an, a hugely important skill, because if you could play the fiddle, you could get out of a lot of, you know, you could get out of some work because you were valued for the entertainment. That was it, you know, no TVs or whatever. And so it used to be such an important, like the fiddle banjo music used to be such an important part of black culture. And it's just been so wholesale forgotten. It, it's it's kind of staggering to, to think it used to have such an integral part to play and is now so forgotten that it is considered white music. You ask an average African-American and they're just like, oh yeah, that's white music. And if you if you had said where, where it come from, they would be surprised, you know? I mean, but that, you know, that's to everybody. That's not just the black culture. I mean, everybody thinks that. But it's just, I, I'd, I'd really hesitate the word political. I'm not really a big fan of it because politics to me is a broken, horrible system that's not really serving the needs of the people. For me, those kind of acts are acts of humanism. They're acts of uh, uh, justice, like... Like to, to play, to play music, to fight. For me, like you play live music, you're fighting the consumerist, the sort of consumerist com- capitalism or whatever, where it means you're supposed to consume, you're not supposed to make, you're supposed to consume somebody else's creativity because you're a widget maker and you don't get to make music anymore. And I just, that really irritates me too, because it's like, it used to be everybody could play a song. Everybody could sing a tune. You know, you still see it in Ireland, you know, in the older generation, they have a, they have a bit of a sing song and everybody has a song that they sing. And it is the most magical thing. And it, half the stuff is not even like trad. It's like something off the radio from 75 or from 83. And it's like they sing it a cappella, and it's like marvelous. And we've really lost that sense over here. It's like we watch American Idol rather than singing a song. It's like, oh, I could never sing. You know, it's like everybody used to could sing. You got a voice you can sing. You got fingers, you can play an instrument. Maybe you'll never be that great, but who cares? You're like, you're getting the joy out of making music, which used to be such a human trait. And now 
is just so lost. I mean, just the idea of like singing a song all together, people freak out. You hear happy birthday being done horribly, like all over, all over the place because people are so self-conscious about it. And they're just so, their voices are so rusty. And it's just like, I, I think that music is such a great way to, to fight that, to fight that consumerism. So can you ever see yourself making a fiddle or a banjo? Making? No. No, uh, I draw the line. At, I, you know, you also got to know what you're good at and what other people get at. John Montgomery is very good at making fiddles and violins. I'm really content with um, playing them. I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm an artist in other ways, you know, and I, I knit and I weave and I do all that stuff. And that's, all, that, that's, that's my handicraft. <laughs> I, I'm not going to try to make a banjo, though. Did Joe Thompson ever make a fiddle? No. No. I mean, it's a whole nother. That's yeah, a whole no, nother I understand. I haven't either. I yeah. haven't either. Yeah. What are you playing now? What's your violin? I have two. Um, I learned early on uh, doing a gig at Celtic Cafe in Winston-Salem to not retune the fiddles too much. My bridge fell and my sound post almost fell. And because I hadn't been watching, I'd been going from A to standard, you know, back again. And, and so I learned then uh to carry two fiddles. And so from then on, I, I bought an extra, another fiddle. And it took me a while to find my G fiddle. I have a, I have a fiddle that I keep in G because everything we played with Joe was in G. We didn't play all, uh, too many of the C tunes. So that, so that fiddle, I, it took me a while to find a good G fiddle. And I finally, John Montgomery actually sold it to me. He'd been holding it back. It wasn't out in the store. And I told him what I was looking for. And I had been through a couple fiddles that I'd bought and sold back to him and weren't happy with. And he sold me this German, German fiddle from I think turn of the century or slightly after, it's got one of these heads on it, you know, carved heads looking at you and city on the back, and it just loved being in G, because of course back then A wasn't 440, everything was a bit lower, so the resonance of the fiddle really loves being in G, and you have to find a fiddle that wants to be there because otherwise it keeps trying to get back up to A, so I just I love it. It just has this deep, rich, beautiful sound, and I just you know it's the one I was looking for. So I have that and I have a really nice standard fiddle. So I can play in four keys with the two. So my G fiddle is G, D, G, D, and then I can take the first D down to a C and play at a C. And then my I have a standard fiddle and then I can take it up to A if I want or or D. So, you know, for, for a cheater, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a good little system. I guess I imagine seeing that circle. I'm seeing it as a circle you're saying. When the opera world left and the uh, the folk music career started, you know, one was fading out, one was. Mm-hmm. But if you take that circle around, can you see someday in the future possibly doing folk opera of some sort, composing, putting something together? Yeah, yeah. And I've been working on a Black Broadway project, music from the turn of the century by black composers and and uh, from in, who lived in New York. I've gotten three things orchestrated, um, sung them with the NC Symphony. I had a really great. Uh, night with them where I sang these pieces, which were very classical. I sang them classically and then did a, a three minstrel pieces with my band. And then they did a, a the first Afro-American symphony by William Grant Still. And I read the poetry in between. It's really neat. All of these different pieces of my life kind of intersecting. Just recently I sang Summertime in the original key with them with Branford Marsalis playing, playing horn. And it was, mm-hmm. so I have, I have been able to sort of bring it back into, into my life, which has been, which has been really, really great. Because it's um, it's a big piece of my history, and and uh, I have I have several projects involving it that I would like to get off the ground. Should there be any effort to reach out to the African American community to interest them in traditional string music, and uh, how should that effort go forward? Any ideas on that? Man, you're seeing somebody whose audience is 99% white all the time, so. You know, we tr- we've tried. We just got my first interview with um, with Essence magazine, so I'm hoping to start. I did the White House, and uh, uh, it was a gospel night at the White House, and I sang the Sister Rosetta Tharp number, and and somebody who does like gospel stuff for BET was like, "Gotta get your band." You know, it's kind of starting a little bit, a little bit. This the the record that I just put out has it seems to have a bit of, of a bigger reach than the chocolate drops. Unfortunately, you know our name works for us and against us. And I think in the black community they see Carolina chocolate drops and they're like, next, we're not. 
we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Um, I mean, even when we were interviewed by Tavis Smiley, he was like, oh, oh, it sounds like something like the Ebony Hillbillies. Ha, ha, ha. It's just like, really? <laughs> you know, number one, they exist. They were banned out of New York. And number two, did you really make that joke? It's like, it, it was just just kind of like, it's it's a big, difficult thing to crack. Um, we We get the hipsters from the black community definitely come out. And the older generation who have either memories or know people, you know, they say, oh, my uncle used to play or my grandfather. Yeah. So we've had that connection, which is fantastic. And we've seen the numbers grow of, of black folk coming to, come to the shows. Definitely. It's still a small, it's still small, but cracking like the, like the, the black uh, entertainment complex and that whole thing. I mean, I don't know how that's going to happen. I, I just don't, <laughs> but we're doing what we can. We did a very in-depth uh, story about this stolen Stradivari violin. Mm-hmm. And it was stolen in Milwaukee. And it was this fellow in his 40s, I think, uh, African-American guy. And he had already stolen a piece of artwork some years before and done time for it. But he, he, had, he was obsessed with stealing a high-end violin, a Stradivari, so and he weird. had books on it and everything. Yeah. It, is, it is weird. But there's a kind of a tragic character in this story. And I've been really wrestling with how far to go with it because I talked to one of the public defenders. So the, uh, the robbery occurred using a taser. Mm. And it was done right after a concert. Frank Almond's the concert master at Milwaukee Symphony came out with this Lipinski Strad, a very famous mm-hmm. Strad that he doesn't own. It had been lent to him. And uh, this fellow came up and tased him and took the, the thing. And it really became like a Lindbergh kidnapping for right. the city. The whole city really came to focus about mm-hmm. trying to get this back. And they didn't at first know who had it. Yeah. They thought it was some Asian gang, maybe for some collector. And then slowly the picture emerged that it was somebody in the city. But the fellow that provided the um, taser to him was a barber, mm-hmm. African-American guy, and had no convictions of any sort, no trouble with the law, uh, had two young daughters, and was also a community, had done a lot of community uh, kind of work mm-hmm. that was respected. And he was the first one to admit it was the dumbest thing he ever did, but he swore, and everyone, see, and I talked to the police people, and they all said he probably didn't know how it was going to be used. He knew it was going to be used for something. Right. But he had a license, so he had an ability to buy it. Right. And it kind of led to how they found him because these things give off a confetti mm-hmm. kind of streamer. And they found the code and found out it came from a place in Texas, mm-hmm. found out this guy had bought it. And so every time you would read an article about the theft of this, it would always say this $5 million Stradivari, mm-hmm. $5 million Stradivari. And so when it came up time for the sentencing – this fella, and his name is Universal Knowledge, Allah. Okay. Okay. So he had adopted this name, Universal Knowledge, Allah. And he had come out and said, I'm very sorry. I didn't know it would be useful. He certainly wasn't there when it happened. So the public defender looked at similar situations and basically thought he might get a year, and that would be, in fact, more than people under the same circumstances. And he was hoping possibly even get probation. Uh, this is for giving a taser to somebody. Yeah, for providing the weapon that okay. was used in the crime several weeks later. But the judge wound up uh, sending him to prison for three years without parole. And everyone, including the police, thought this was way beyond uh, yeah. normal mm-hmm. sentencing. And his justification was it was such a valuable instrument. Hmm. And you played a role in stealing it. And to me, what I heard in that, and now maybe getting back to this political idea, this cultural political idea, is that there is a segment of the society that views this box with these strings made it at this time in history to be almost the, the poster child. It represents the highest mm-hmm. attainment in art and culture in, in organized society, as mm-hmm. it were, and the affrontery for somebody to come along and steal it. Especially somebody in black. Yeah. I mean, you want to say Milwaukee. that didn't have to do with anything? Yeah. So Three years of a man's life for a, a, a box of wood, you know, for not even stealing it. I mean, that that's... And two daughters without their father. It's kind of it's kind of staggering. That's my favorite. One of my favorite parts of any movie is the end of The Red Violin. I, I, it's like it is, we put this stuff on a pedestal. And and it's like people. I love I love that whole story because everybody wants that violin for not the right reason. You know what I mean? And then the 
the person who gets it <laughs> is actually going to play it. You know what I mean? Probably play it horribly, but you know, it's like it's been it's it's built to be played, not to be put not to be revered as a god, not to be valued at 5 million dollars. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I don't get me started on valuing instruments past a certain point. I just kind of feel like it's how do you how do you how do you how do you value how do you even like I can't even what's the word the worth of 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 something like that like past what is that there is an old expression we know the price of everything but not the value Mm -hmm. of anything yeah then we we are losing and that's that idea is there anything in life that is inherently part of the sacred and whatever we mean by that word that's a very big word yeah but somehow the arts are yearning in our soul for something I would call a sacred. And when money comes into that world in such large amounts, it begins to twist and warp everything. And then you get a society that is being separated by tremendous differences in wealth. And then add on to that class and race oh, and you, color. You got, you got a $5 million Stradivarius, and yet they're cutting every freaking music program in school wherever they can. But here's a $5 million Stradivarius. Let's give this guy three years for giving somebody a taser. But let's cut the, let's cut the programs. You right. know? That might have taught him as a young boy why this piece of wood was so important and valuable. You take away that. You don't well, yeah, even teach you, well, them you to just, the you take You take away – you know, it goes back to you know, what's consumable and what is sellable and what is you – know, it's the same thing with in, in visual art. You, know, you have this art that somebody says is worth $2 million and yet somebody's trying to, trying to paint and trying to you – know, like it's just – it's we just have we're just skewed. Our values are skewed. That's all there is to it. That's why basketball players make jillions of dollars and teachers make twenty thousand a year. I mean, it's you know our values are skewed. We just gotta keep chipping away and keep fiddling. That's right. Let's listen now to Rihanna play the fiddle with the Carolina Chocolate Drops. The tune is titled Snowden's Jig.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and for links to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And let's end with just a few words from William Shakespeare. If music be the food of love, play on.